Have you ever been assigned a patient that winds up being not so cut and dry? Like those patients in acute care or the nursing home who have dysphagia but struggle to complete exercises or compensatory strategies because of their intellectual or developmental disability. Or the patient with respiratory failure who develops respiratory-driven cardiac arrest, gets intubated for 10 plus days, and is on a trach and vent. Oh, and he also has a history of stroke, congestive heart failure, COPD, diabetes, and traumatic brain injury. No textbook or single webinar could ever prepare you for that. But we have something that can help you get there, and it's totally free. On May 19th, the MedSLP Collective is hosting another never-been-done-before virtual summit titled Advanced Therapy for Complex Patients, a Medical SLP's Guide. Learn critical concepts with actionable steps you can take for those not-so-cut-and-dry cases. You can earn up to 0.8 advanced ASHA CEUs if you are or you become a member of the MedSLP Collective, and the recording is also available inside of the Collective. Ready to scale your clinical skills? Go to medslpcollective.com forward slash summit to register today. This is episode 237 of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today's guest is Katya Bruno. She's a medical SLP at Platte Valley Medical Center in Colorado. She graduated from SSU in Russia and continued her education at Boston University and Emerson College when relocated to the U.S. Katya has over 20 years of SLP experience in adult and pediatric rehab in various settings. Her primary clinical interests focus on dysphagia. Katia's research is in transitional foods implementation and SLP daily practice. She serves as a CF and SLP student CI, organizer, and an invited speaker for local and international conferences, volunteers at NFOSD, IDSI, and ASHA IIB. Katia loves spending time with family and friends, traveling, watercolor painting, and ice skating. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, a mobile fees business owner, and founder of the MedSLP Collective. This podcast is all about delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for treatment or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is to help ditch the old-school ways of the past that no longer serve you or your patients to reinvigorate your passion for our field, to broaden your knowledge about our scope of practice, and to inspire you to practice at the top of your license. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride, be open and willing to learn, because let's face it, your patients deserve that kind of care. With that, let's dive right in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good morning, Katya. Good morning, Teresa. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. That's an yeah. honor. It's so lovely to meet you. I know I've seen your name around DRS for years and years, so it's so lovely to actually put a face to a name. So um, if you want to tell the people a little bit about yourself. Yes. Uh, my official name is Ekaterina Bruno. I go by Katya. I am a medical speech pathologist at Platte Valley Medical Center um, in Colorado and a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. I was born and raised um, and graduated from uh, a speech pathology program in Russia in 1999. Uh, I worked with kids primarily, um, and in 2010, I moved here to the U.S. and continued my education here. 
I worked for over 20 years in different settings, pediatric and adult, um, rehabilitation, subacute, uh, long-term acute care, outpatient clinics, private companies, and school settings. Uh, my current primary clinical interests focus on people with dysphagia, secondary to stroke, brain injury, and ALS, as well as to acute and chronic respiratory failure. I am passionate about instrumental assessment of swallowing, education and support for people with swallowing disorders, and medical professionals working with dysphagia population. Um, I work with Russia, um, where I'm from, um, with people with dysphagia and medical professionals, and I've been organizing conferences for them, uh, for different uh, companies, um, including the ELS Center, Mercy Medical Center, uh, Milosirdia, Service for People with ELS, and Live Now Charitable Foundation. I presented and um, was a part of organizing the conferences, uh, such as DRS, ASHA, Colorado Speech Hearing Associations. Um, I serve as a clinical f- uh, fellow mentor and um, SLP student mentor, a leader for uh, National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders Denver Dysphagia Support Group, um, and a board member of the Denver Dysphagia Rounds. Um, also did some volunteer work for Colorado Speech Hearing Association um, and was um, a volunteer for SIG-13. So this is my You've extensive bio. Yes, yes. Oh, my <laughs> I goodness. have been. Yeah, so you keep you keep very very busy apparently. I like it. Yes, it's yeah. such a such a great opportunity here in the U.S. to be exposed to all sorts of scientific journals, um, research. You can e- actually email professors from all over the world and uh, definitely in the U.S. and ask questions, and they are happy to answer. Yeah. So yeah. this is just wonderful. I use all the opportunities I can. Yeah, that's amazing. All right. So where do you want to start today? What do you want to dive into today? Actually, we just presented at DRS about the traditional foods, and this is my um, latest interest. So I would like to uh, maybe talk about this. Yeah, let's dive in. So um, I and my friend um, Olga Johnson uh, translated the EDC documents into Russian. Oh, awesome. Uh, So that was fun. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And... uh, it's not just the language, it's culture. And when you do um, a translation, you always try to incorporate what, you, what you're translating, what the information is into the cultural field. And the part for transitional foods was such a pain in the neck. <laughs> we didn't know what it was. We didn't use it ever. It was kind of hard to explain to people what Japanese jello is or baby mamans and find maybe an equivalent. Um, in um, Russian products to that, to let people know what traditional foods are. So we did translate that. Um, and then I was introduced to Dr. Erwell, and I know she was at your podcast, Yeah, yeah. I think maybe a year ago. She developed a product that is traditional food. It's um, it's level seven regular food. You put this in your mouth, and in five minutes, five seconds, it dissolves into puree. So traditional foods go from seven to five, from regular to minced and moist, but this one actually goes to puree. That was, that introduction was for our dysphagia support group that we do here with my colleagues, Shannon Heinrich and Bas Del Santo in Denver. We do it quarterly. So we always, um, or usually have an invited speaker. So Dr. Brava was the perfect one for people with dysphagia. She 
presented at our um, dysphagia support group um, had a really good outcome, really good response from the people. It's usually our former patients or curing patients. Um, I worked in LTAC at that time, so dysphagia is transient, so we don't really have long lingering people, but now we're growing more, so hopefully uh, we will have more um, representation. Um, anyways, that was wonderful. I loved it. I It just changed my view to transitional foods. Then she presented for Colorado SLPs um, for SCL company where I work now. It's a, a, a hospital system. So she pre- presented for us and also at Denver Dysphagia Rounds for medical SLPs in Colorado. So that's just great. And you heard the episode. If you didn't, uh, please go and, and do that. You'll love it. So transitional foods. I was interested and uh, she sent me some samples. I started using them in my practice. And then we were thinking, we are just sitting on a ton of data. Why not just use it? Why not do some research? So what we did is use these transitional foods in video fluoroscopy to just see how the food behaves in the person's mouth and the throat and use it in therapy as um, transitional food trials with speech therapy and um, as a snack. Work with the kitchen, work with dietitians, and they already had an order for daily snacks. So we just added savories there for once a week, excuse me, once a day. And we decided that would be enough. It's a bag of crisps, so that's enough for the day. And people can just eat it throughout the day. It says eat in one sitting, but it has a little um, Ziploc tie. And uh, they just can zip it and eat it in 10 minutes or save it for the evening or between the meals. So that was perfect. So we collected all the data that we had on this. What we reported is um, a retrospective data analysis for 15 people with dysphagia. Uh, video fluoroscopy results with puree and transitional foods because we had other trials, but it wasn't enough to compare, let's say, soft and bite size and transitional food or regular and transitional food. Not everybody was tolerating those trials and there was not too many participants. So it was um, statistically insignificant to report that. So that's the next phase. And we also uh, scored this on uh, MBS IMP, uh, PS scores. Uh, we excluded components 113 and 17 for MBS IMP. One is the lips. We could not see the lips because we have C arm in LTAC. You can't really see the lips. 13 and 17 is AP view. Um, and we didn't give all the consistencies on AP view because there would be too much radiation exposure. So we exclude these components. We performed Wilcoxon um, signed rank test to determine differences in function between the two consistencies. And the results were that there was no significant dis- difference in overall swallow function between transitional foods and puree across the participants. And traditional food was equal to puree in MBS IMP in assessed participants. Um, in conclusion, the traditional food did not increase risk and could be used to increase um, food and texture variety. So in physiology worked the same as, f- as for puree. So we decided that was safe to give to people on pureed and minced and moist level diets. 
We recommended transitional foods based on MBS uh, scores uh, overall to more medically compromised patients. We didn't really think about, okay, so this is a medically compromised patient. Let's give them uh, uh, transitional food. We tested that. We saw what the threshold was uh, with the solids. And if it was puree or minced and moist, we recommended transitional foods because if it's soft and bite size or regular food, people didn't really need it. Um, they could eat something else and there was no need in uh, transitional foods. So we did this and um, looks like the physiological underlying impairments, including MBS, MBS IMP components, were decreased bolus awareness, decreased oral prep, oral residuals, decreased bolus control, pharyngeal weakness, pharyngeal residuals, decreased sensation, decreased safety, such as airway protection, decreased UES opening, but not severely, and decreased esophageal clearance. Most of the, not participants, but most of the um, people who we recommended the traditional foods were on puree and minced and moist, like I said, and the um, other conditions included fatigue, weakness, anxiety with higher textures, discomfort with pure intake, dysgeusia, anosmia, loss of taste and smell. In COVID, we started last year, so it was a lot of COVID patients. Um, xerostomia, such, in, such as on head and neck cancer, worsening respiratory functions with high textures. There was LTAC, so increased respiratory rate and um, oxygen needs. Um, and esophageal abnormalities. When we looked at the data, it turned out that 57% of COVID-19 patients uh, were recommended transitional foods, 100% was brain tumor, um, CVA, and TBI. All of this are 100%. 50% of participants who recommended traditional foods uh, had aspiration pneumonia DTMS. I I mean, 50% benefited from that or were recommended. 57% 57% had decreased dental status and um, 86% needed uh, feeding assist. Um, we did not recommend traditional foods to patients who remained NPO after the video fluoroscopy because they just couldn't push any food down through the UES. It was too much of residuals, too much of um, risk of um, aspiration. Uh, so we did not recommend any food any liquid except maybe ice chips, and definitely not transitional foods. That was the only contraindication for transitional. Uh, We started using transitional foods in therapy uh, for higher texture trials, swallowing exercises with transitional foods. Normally, it was just a variation of PO trials for effortful swallow. Just uh, oral manipulation with transitional foods but if we talk about exercise, just an um, uh, effortful swallow, because what do we have? Applesauce and pudding? Yeah. <laughs> People yeah. are sick of applesauce and pudding, especially applesauce, in the hospital. So we just use crisps, uh, and they work as applesauce, just wow. nicer. And yeah. they have different tastes. They have, we had carrots, pea, peas, and uh, chicken. So I think chicken was the most popular. Oh my goodness. So I didn't, I didn't realize they had made foods like that too. I just thought they had like the crisps and things like that. Yeah. And they, they have popcorn now. Popcorn is a little bit smaller. Oh my gosh. Oh wow. Yes. So she's working on a lot of different flavors. Cool. So this is a variety. If you think about giving them uh, trials or um, even a snack. So this is a, 
some compromise. And this is not the applesauce that everybody right. eats eventually. <laughs> right. So, right. so that was a positive outcome. Um, I was asked at DRS how many people agreed to transitional food from what we would recommend. 77%. So almost everyone. Some people just said it was too weird. And it is kind of weird that it melts in your mouth. That's why people on um, soft and bite size or regular food did not really like it very much. Most of them did not because it was like, like they would say, oh, it's just strange. It's just kind of weird in my mouth. And I don't like that it melts. But people who needed that and who could not take any of the higher textures did like that for the most part. Yeah. I know she was wonderful. She sent me some samples too, because my son is is pretty much on like a, uh, I'd say sort of a minced and moist diet really. Mm-hmm. Um, and he liked them, but they just weren't, he takes so long to eat that we have to feed him really calorically dense foods and they just weren't like calorically dense enough. So I've been meaning to to write her and see if they can make some more calorically dense snacks because otherwise he would love them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She probably would recommend you dips. You can do queso. You can do anything. She used to have dips, uh, but then she discontinued uh, because she had uh, just a different kitchen, different company. Uh, but you can use French, for example. Yeah. I don't know if your kid would like French dressing, but yeah, adults yeah. were asking about that. Uh, something else. Yeah, it's a good idea. We did not use dips very much. Yeah, so we just uh, decided to go with crisps. We um, used it in COVID-19 patients. One patient was on um, soft and bite-sized, and he just couldn't feel the taste. I think it was just the first COVID, not the Delta variant, the very first one. Um, So that was the worst, um, at least in LTAC population. Um, So he tried um, savories. He had um, daily snacks. Sometimes he would eat it, sometimes he would not, but it helped him to feel the taste better and to transition to other foods easier. We used some other spices. I have a Mexican store basically next door. So I went shopping for my COVID patients um, and I would just give them spices. Um, So a lot of Hispanic population here or just um, a huge Hispanic culture influence. Everybody, almost everyone loves Hispanic food here. Um, So that helped a lot. Looked like it improved quality of life. Uh, increased independence was eating, pleasure socializing, and uh, it was healthy, nutritious snack to supplement peel. Like I said, what do we have? Ice cream, applesauce, pudding for these people for minced and moist and pureed food. So that was a nice supplement. So what data did we get? Uh, there was no adverse effect in traditional food trials or snacks. Um, the variety was increased. People like that. Texture advance, advancement to solid foods higher than puree by discharge. Faster progress in um, dysphagia severity scale. We used that one from the video fluoroscopy time to diet level of discharge. So everybody was NPO in the beginning. Then we did video fluoroscopy, assigned the diet, recorded when the diet was advanced and what diet level was at discharge. And with the population who tried traditional foods and therapy, 40% uh, of people with decreased dental status went to baseline diets, which is uh, minced and moist or chopped and bite size, um, soft and bite size. And 60% improved uh, their diet levels, but didn't go back to their baseline by discharge from LTAC. And the levels were 
soft and bite-sized, and minced and moist. And uh, our conclusions are that transitional foods may be therapeutically advantageous for the progression past the puree-level diet and most appropriate for medical compromised patients with diagnosed dysphagia, those on puree and minced and moist C-level diets, people with decreased dental status, and those who need assistance with PO intake. We also have a little-skilled nursing facility and LTAC and uh, I can talk about different cases um, because I didn't talk much about um, increase of um, independence with food. Yeah. So I can, yeah, I can talk about um, a very interesting case, very fascinating from skilled nursing. Yep. So there was a patient, uh, he was there for five years when we started working with transitional foods. Um, He emerged from coma. He is a president in um, what is called um, a hospital backup unit or sometimes super sniff, uh, which is a skilled nursing facility for people with tracheostomy tubes. Um, So he was there for five years. He emerged from coma. He became more and more um, active and interactive. The staff asked um, our department if we could work with him and he could start eating again. Um, So um, our speech pathologist, Lisa, worked with him. And he started eating uh, pureed food and drinking thin liquids from the uh, Proveal cup once a day, because this is how much he tolerated being up. Very compromised posture. Um, He couldn't sit, not like long enough. He couldn't stay in the chair more than a few hours. He likes to get up late. He's a resident. He's entitled. So why not? So he would um, get up late, have his lunch, go back to sleep, have a nap, and maybe stay in the bed um, in the evening. He went to um, activities like bingo or any sort of, there was no outings during COVID, but um, we had um, uh, somebody coming with the owls to our courtyard and they just showed the owls to the residents. So that was wonderful. So things like that. Um he would like to participate in some eating activities, I don't know, birthday, but he wasn't pureed diet. And of course, he depended on um, one-on-one assistance from nursing. Uh, we decided to try transitional food with him. That was good. I just gave him crisps, put a Dyson, put a plate on the Dyson so it's not sliding, uh, put uh, the crisps on the plate, and he was just grabbing the crisps and chilling and watching TV and using his Proveal cup. He can use his hand, one hand. And it was good enough for a snack, so he couldn't do it for a long time. And he missed some. He ate other crisps, so that was good. He was just chilling in the TV room, eating, drinking his own, fully independent. He still needs um, assistance for PO intake, but at least for snacks, he is, yeah, he is independent. He is, um, he has quality of life, at least for that short period of time. So that was wonderful. That's so great to hear. I, I know. I think, mm-hmm. I think sometimes we forget the whole independence piece that how vital that is to quality of life and how important that is to our patients, you know, and, you know, we obviously know that feeding patients is a higher risk of aspiration, but, you know, just giving them that quality of life back is, is everything. So mm-hmm. let me tell you about a couple more people here. There was a uh, 70 or 70 year, um, 78 year old patient 
uh, with obviously acute respiratory failure would also get an LTAC. And uh, studies post um, elective meningioma resection, tracheostomy, severe um, GERD with strictures. He had full, full set of dentures. And video fluoroscopy, we saw that he has decreased bolus control, bolus preparation mastication, a decreased tone base retraction, airway closure, pharyngeal stripping wave, and a PS opening. As a result, we saw pharyngeal residuals, PS2 with uh, nectar-stick liquids, and 7-8 with thin liquids. We recommended NPO with puree, nectar-stick, and assist with meals. Excuse me, uh, from NPO to puree um, uh, and uh, nectar-stick. Um, here's dysphagia outcome. Um, severity scale was three, moderate dysphagia. And we started doing neuromuscular electrical stimulation with exercises and transitional food trials for oral tolerance of higher textures and for that um, effortful swallow. As a result, he disliked puree and nectar, big surprise. Uh, he had very poor oral uh, PO intake. If he was being fed, he started taking crisps independently, and uh, he became fully independent with meals. In five days after video fluoroscopy and start of therapy uh, with transitional food trials, he upgraded to um, softened bite size and uh, uh, improved his PO intake. So his dysphagia severity scale was um, level was five, and in nine days, he graduated to thin liquids still a dysphagia severity scale 5, um, improved diet satisfaction, and health, had mild dysphagia by discharge. Um, he discharged to skilled nursing, I believe. So there was a huge problem with discharging people at some point to the next level of care because of um, insurance problems. So instead of going to inpatient rehab, which would be wonderful for him, he went to skilled nursing, I think, for one week, instead of a couple of weeks in patient rehab. So he stayed longer with us and he needed uh, speech therapy for dysphagia at the next level of care. But he was pretty good by discharge compared to what he was before. Yeah, I love that. Um, and another one, um, there was a 65-year-old woman with squamous cell carcinoma of tongue, stage three, status post chemo radiation therapy, um, she has uh, natural dentition and problems with oral pain, pharyngeal discomfort as a uh, result of chemo radiation therapy, fatigue, dysgeusia, and diet texture dissatisfaction, anxious to eat. Um, she came to us on puree and thin liquids, um, tube feeds, and anxious to eat. She basically did not eat in the hospital. They deemed her to be safe to eat pure, puree and drink thin liquids, but she didn't want to do anything with that. Um, she was too nervous to start, and um, she didn't eat anything. So we started. We just tried some puree, some transitional. She started eating a little bit of puree. She liked the crisps, progressed to minced and moist pretty soon, and she had no oral pain, pharyngeal discomfort or fatigue, no xerostomia issues with the diet or snacks. Her quality of life improved and her PO, PO intake improved. So she ate pretty well. Not all of the meal, but the majority of the meal. So this is pretty encouraging. And we, we decided to continue and do more with video fluoroscopy to um, compare soft and bite-sized and uh, regular food 
with transitional and continue with puree and just gather more data with that. Meanwhile, I switched from LTAC to um, inpatient acute and uh, outpatient. So it's less of the swallowing studies that I perform, but still we would like to continue and gather as much data as possible um, and just uh, gather data on snacks and exercises with transitional foods in these two settings and see how it is across the settings and maybe what is specific to the setting. Uh, We have 16 cases gathered already in LTAC before I switched. So we'll see how that goes. Yeah. yeah. Did you guys, did you say you have video fluoroscopy in the LTAC? Do you have a C-arm in the LTAC? Oh, that's awesome. We did. That's lovely. Yes. And I didn't mention that we did the study with uh, Dr. Samantha Shun. Oh, yeah. She also presented at DRS. Yes. Yeah, she was at your podcast as well. She said it was a very interesting experience and she loved it. Oh, good, good. <laughs> yeah. So we did it through the University of Oregon. Oh, cool. Okay. Did you guys just, just randomly, did you guys have any access to fees or did you consider fees at all for any of it? Well, <laughs> that's a pain for my heart. Speech pathologists before me advocated for fees for eight years. I advocated for two years. We did all the documentation, all the policies, processes, and procedures, um, informed consent, everything. Everything was accepted, but because of COVID, we didn't start and we didn't start again. And then I left. So, yeah, unfortunately, that didn't happen. It would be such a valuable tool in LTAC. Yeah. That was, yeah, when I was doing fees full-time, a lot of the places that I that I did fees, that was in the LTAC. But I would love to see this sort of stuff under fees. I would love to see what the transitional foods look like under fees. I'm just, my wheels are turning now to see what it would would actually look like. Because I'm, I'm curious as to, you know, you said it turns into puree, but I'm curious to sort of see how that mm-hmm. piecemeal, how, how it looks. And, and what, yeah. yeah, I will do fees at my inpatient outpatient. Yeah. So I'm just training for passings. I have my formal training, but it was a while ago. So I'm just training passings and hopefully we can um, add fees to that too. Yeah. Yeah. And see what's cool. different. Yeah. Oh, I love this. This is great. I, I think, you know, I, I loved hearing about this product when it first came out, but I love to see that you guys are actually doing some data collection with it. And I mean, I think, I just think of so many patients I've seen in the nursing homes that, you know, just cognitively or, or whatever reason, just were not able to handle a lot, handle a lot of the snack foods, but they wanted them so badly. And I think these, I think this is really a game changer for, I think, especially skilled nursing, but I think of, you know, obviously a lot of different patient populations as well. Yeah. That would be nice if he had, we, we had fees because of that skilled nursing, we have to send people out patient in the hospital because we can't do inpatient and inpatient. So that's against the rules. Um, and uh, the hospital SLPs are wonderful. They would send a um, very detailed report and call us and update us. And we feel like we were there with them. But still, that would be nice to have the fees available and just go there and don't wait and just go and do the fees in the skilled nursing. Yeah. And you mentioned the product. Um, I don't want to sound that I'm... <laughs> that I'm promoting that this product, I love it, but we didn't really see any alternatives. Uh, first, I heard about the Eat Bar and you also had somebody from the Eat Bar mm-hmm. at your podcast. I don't know if they still produce the Eat Bar. I know that there are baby mom moms 
And actually, Dr. Riva and Dr. Samantha Shun um, did a study um, about dissolution of all of these products. That is what the article I was going to talk about. Yeah. So <laughs> it's called uh, A Comparison of Behavior of Traditional State Foods Under Varying Oral Conditions. So they tested uh, various products with pulsing tongue pressure, with, without the tongue pressure, for five seconds, for 12 seconds, and looks like savory crisps dissolves, dissolved faster and more predictably than others tested uh, consistencies. So that's why we use savories. And it was right there, it was available. So if anybody wants to use any other product and report on that, that would be actually very interesting to see if other traditional foods behave in a similar way than this product. Um, But it it fitted the profile best for us based on this um, article and best based on these findings. So we used that. And then again, it was right there at our fingertips. So why not? Yeah, yeah. I know. I, I love that, the Eat Bar too. And I actually, my son loved them too. They were a lot more calorically dense, but I tried to order some more and I wasn't able to. So I might have to reach back out to her and see, see if they're still making yeah. it or not. Yeah. Yeah. And we like that it was actually not just sweet. Um, Dr. Eva is making popcorn and uh, something else that is a sweet option, but it was savory option too as a snack. So that was, that was pretty good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Katya. This is, this is wonderful. Should we switch gears a little bit here? Um, I just want to acknowledge how brave international SLPs are because it wasn't, uh, wasn't uh, an easy transition for me personally. Took four years to prove that I am actually an SLP. Um, I have appropriate education and take some more classes to add to my um, courses because I graduated as a special education teacher and a speech pathologist. So it was like a dual major, which wasn't really, but that's the education I got. So because of of the teaching courses, I didn't have enough credits for speech pathology here in the States. And I know some other SLPs who've been through the whole program because their education was not recognized fully yeah, even from the UK. I talked to a girl from the UK and she said she had to go back to master's oh, program goodness. to the full program because her education was not recognized by um by local standards. Um we talk a lot about diverse population and how difficult that is. I just want to acknowledge that it's not easy for international SLPs or for foreign SLPs to transition into the US. I really appreciate the DRS effort to collaborate with um, the European Swallowing Society and have a broader view on at least the swallowing disorders. Um, I know they collaborate with the Japanese society, so we kind of need a global view on everything because um, different countries operate in um, and abide by different rules. Um, let's say it's dentists in uh, Japan who deal with dysphagia primarily. Oh, interesting. I so didn't know that. They're not very much allowed. Yeah. Yes. Wow, I didn't know that. You have to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. Dr. Langmore had a Japanese PhD student. That's how I found out. So that was very interesting. It was just mind-blowing. Like, why? It's different in, in Russia, let's say. Um, it's usually... Um, an ENT doctor who performs the fees or somewhat fees. It's more like a laryngoscopy. 
And uh, sometimes an SLP is present and sometimes they're not. And radiologist, um, the actual doctor is doing the video fluoroscopy and sometimes uh, an SLP is present and sometimes they're not. So it's not very recognized. So I think we should have a global view on how things are done to improve our practices all over the world. Yeah. You, so you said it took you four years to get your to get recognized yes. here. What 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 took so long? Did they require you to take extra language proficiency requirements? I know that that can sometimes happen. If you go to the full program, yes, you will have to pass the TOEFL besides the GRE. Uh, GRE. For language proficiency, if you are a master's or a PhD student, a friend is a PhD student at the University of Chicago, so she had to do that besides the usual requirements. It's just, um, I don't know if it's better at ASHA now. I hope it is, and I think it is. I had a different case manager at least every year, and they just had different requirements for me. So that would be nice if it was universal for everyone and um, just, you know, same formula for everybody, not depending on the case manager so much. So they required me to take, I think, six more um, credits first, and then three more again, or the other way around. So it was some requirements, then there was some more, then there was some more course description from the Russian school. And I graduated in 99, and it was free education. I was both Soviet, so I didn't pay anything. I was the last year who did this. And when you graduate from the Russian school, they just say, okay, goodbye. And you never go back and you never bother them again. Unless, unlike here, where they take care of you basically for your, through your whole life, which is great. They will send you transcripts. They will send you course descriptions. That's just wonderful how American schools take care of their students. Um, and the Russian school was free and they just, you know, you graduate and that's it. There's nothing else expected. <laughs> so you, you're gone. You're done. So that was um, a very interesting. I have a very good relationship with our uh, program director, who was um, our professor at the time. Um, so I just contacted him and he helped me. But again, there was just different requirements, different times. I contacted him several times and we sent different course descriptions to Asha. So that's what it was. What, what do you think Asha could do to make things easier? I think they do have requirements and uh, guidelines, maybe just abide by the guidelines and make it universal for everybody. Because even in my case, I am the same person, same education, same, you know, nothing changed, but from a case manager to a case manager, it was different. Yeah. The requirements were different. So maybe, I don't know, just have a formula for that international um, transitioning SLP and stick to the formula. And I understand that would be individual for everyone based on the country, based on the education, the program, the school, but maybe just um, just stick to it. What a concept, right? <laughs> oh, well, this has been wonderful, Katya. Is there anything else you want to touch on? Any any final thoughts? Any? Yeah. Um, I just think this is a wonderful podcast. And thank you so much for your efforts. Uh, my CF really loved your medical SLP um, uh, collaboration. Uh, the website was all the uh, all the courses and all the materials. Um, she used it all the time. I use your cranial nerve oh, exam good, good. template, and I teach my students. And um, I showed it to my CF um, had one so far. So that's that's wonderful. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Katya. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. 
download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email so that you'll never miss another episode. If you like what you hear, then please subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, and share it on social media with your friends and colleagues, because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Special credit to Danny V. Socrates for her amazing audio and editing skills. As always, thanks so much for listening and see you next week.